Welcome to Footnotes, created by Francis Garrett, a professor of Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto. Footnotes is a series of short lectures on research in the field. Each episode features an article or book chapter from an academic book. We aim to make topics in Buddhist studies research freely accessible to students and the public. This is Francis. Today I'm going to talk about an article by John Powers called The Body of the Buddha which is an entry in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Religion. Here we're going to get a general introduction to how bodies are thought about in Indian Buddhism. Music today was recorded by a musician and Buddhist studies scholar, Trent Walker, and you can find it on his website of Cambodian music at stirringandstilling.org. Trent spent many years working with Cambodian Buddhist songs, and the one we're listening to today is called Formations Fade Away. This is a popular new Dharma song about the three marks in Buddhism. And following a few stanzas on that, there is a section on the disposal of the body after death. This is essentially a song about impermanence, especially impermanence of the body. You can read the verses of the song translated into English on the Stirring and Stilling website. This song is sung by Prum Ut, a renowned Cambodian singer who was a rice farmer for most of his life, and Khoet Ran, the daughter of a rice farmer who, after losing her vision in a farming accident, began to perform regularly as a singer at funerals and other Buddhist ceremonies. The earliest Buddhist writing is known for its negative view of the body as a site for suffering. The reason the beings are caught in cyclic existence, the endless cycle of rebirth. As Powers says, in the Pali canonical sources, and Pali is the language used in the earliest written sources that we have for Indian Buddhism, bodies are described as repulsive as bags of filth containing various disgusting substances such as excrement, urine, saliva, mucus, and blood. This description of the body is used in meditation, so meditators can focus on their bodies as the sources of suffering and as something ideally to be discarded. Because there is believed to be no enduring soul or essence that's reborn, Our existence takes form in an endless series of different bodies as we cycle through one rebirth to the next. Meditating on the nature of the body is important in many forms of Buddhism because it can help practitioners become more aware of how the body can be a cause for suffering and therefore a cause of rebirth. And this awareness can help the practitioner reduce attachment to the body. But actually in Buddhism, bodies are described in many ways other than this. And this article is going to summarize some of these. Let's start with karma. In Buddhist cosmology, meaning the theory about how the entire cosmos is laid out, not just our own world, there are various places where beings can be reborn. 
Some of them are places where your actions can have moral consequences, and others are places like heavens where beings live in endless pleasurable circumstances. This article says that deities or gods who live in the place called the formless realm, for example, are born without bodies, and they just live there in a state of the most enjoyable type of meditation all the time. Eventually, their karmic accounts run out, and they're reborn in one of the other realms, like the human or animal realm. Other beings are reborn into hell realms, where their bodies experience endless tortures. So in this cosmological system, the bodies that beings have reflect the karmic consequences of actions that they've taken in earlier lives. In Buddhism, there are six of these realms of existence, hell realms, hungry ghost realms, animals, humans, demigods, and gods. It's considered ideal to be reborn as a human because only as a human do you have the capacity to upgrade your karmic account. As a god, you're just having too much fun to bother. And as a hell being or an animal, you're suffering too much to try to do the good deeds that would enable you to move toward ending this cycle of rebirth. But it's hard and rare to be reborn as a human. And so for that reason, it's considered a very precious rebirth. There's a series of stories that talk about karma and its role in rebirth that are called the Jataka tales. And these are stories about the Buddha's past lives. A lot of these stories are about how he uses his body in whatever past life is being described. And a lot of the stories are about the pain that he experiences in his body. He'll often donate his body or parts of his body as food for some hungry being, for example. And this immense act of generosity is a good deed that moves him closer to his eventual liberation. Many stories are about his body being tortured in some way. And the message of these stories is, as John Powers puts it in this article, that only beings with material bodies are capable of experiencing pain and are able to skillfully adapt such situations to their soteriological advantage. Soteriology is a word that refers to liberation or enlightenment. So in other words, you need to have a body that experiences pain to be able to use it for your salvation or enlightenment. Here's a reading of one of those stories, Jataka 3.13, that John Powers summarizes in his article. In the story of Shantivadan, the Bodhisattva is a wandering ascetic devoted to the cultivation of patience. One day, he is meditating at the edge of a king's pleasure grove. The king gets drunk and passes out, and his courtesans leave him and wander the grove in search of diversions. They come across Shantivadan and ask him about his religious practice in response to which he delivers a discourse on the benefits of patience. The king, meanwhile, wakes up and becomes angry that his entourage has left him alone, so he searches for them. When he finds his harem sitting around an ascetic and listening raptly to his teachings, he confronts Shantivadan and accuses him of being a charlatan. The king asks his name and he calmly replies, Shantivadan. The king then strikes the sage but fails to spark any anger. He then orders one of his soldiers to cut off Shantivadan's hand but his victim is unperturbed. Every time the king demands he speaks his name, the bodhisattva says, I am he who professes patience. After lopping off Shantivadan's remaining limbs, the king orders the soldiers to cut off his head, but at no point the violent encounter does the bodhisattva waver in the slightest at his calm demeanor. 
As a result, he perfects the matrix of exalted qualities that characterize the mental continuums of Buddhas. In later forms of Buddhism too, like in Mahayana Buddhism, which is the kind of Buddhism that developed later in India and moved to China, Tibet, and elsewhere in the world from India, there are a lot of stories about Buddhas or other almost Buddha figures called bodhisattvas donating their bodies or burning their bodies as generous or virtuous acts. So according to these stories, the Buddha went through countless different lives, gradually doing things like this to perfect his rebirth, and as he did that, he was rewarded with gradually better bodies. According to this form of Buddhism, and I would emphasize that not all Buddhists today would agree with this, this kind of body, the kind of body a being has is a reflection of their own virtues in previous lives. The Buddha himself, then when he finally becomes enlightened, is considered to have the very best type of ideal body. His body is described as being even better than a god's body, like a superman, strong and agile and beautiful. Many early Buddhist texts describe his body like this, for example, such as one text that calls him handsome, good-looking, graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion, with sublime beauty and sublime presence, remarkable to behold. In this article, John Powers says that the Buddha's body has three primary narrative purposes in Pali literature. A, it serves as an advertisement for the path he teaches. B, it's a catalyst for conversion. And C, it convinces skeptics that he really is a Buddha, as he and his followers claim. In fact, his body is described as having all kinds of special characteristics that show that he's not like a regular human. Powers lists some of these as follows. A fist-sized lump on the cranium, a tuft of silver-colored hair a meter in length between the brows, a straight torso, webs between his fingers and toes, legs like an antelope's, a torso and jaw like a cow's, eyelashes like a cow's hands that reach down to his knees, a penis hidden by a sheath, and a tongue that when extruded can be inserted into each ear hole and can cover his forehead. Later texts add a list of 80 secondary characteristics that include golden-colored fingernails, concealed veins, the gait of a lion or a bull, a rounded body, a slender body, and a perfect male sexual organ. These serve to distinguish the Buddha from other men of lesser attainments, Power says, and they're only found on the bodies of great men. So, he's not a normal-looking guy. But of course, remember that these are just stories. We have no way to know what the Buddha actually looked like, or for that matter, whether he actually existed. The Buddha is a fictional character in these stories, which didn't develop until a very long time after he is thought to have maybe lived. Throughout his life story, from the time in his womb until his death, his body is a key part of how he's depicted, though, and that's what's interesting. And even though he had that strangely superhuman body, according to some stories, he did age and die eventually. In Mahayana Buddhism, the story goes that after the Buddha died, passing into nirvana, and therefore escaping that cycle of rebirth, and that's what it means to achieve nirvana in this context, it's to escape that endless cycle of being reborn into a new body, he wasn't actually totally gone. 
Mahayana texts started to say that what people know of as the Buddha's body was actually just one of several forms that he took on. It was what was called an emanation body, that's nirmanakaya, which is the form that a Buddha takes just to be visible to other beings. The story is that he had been enlightened for a long time and just waited until beings on earth needed his help or could be receptive to his help. And then he took on the form that we know that we know of as an act of what's called skillful means or opaya. And his supposed death then was just a teaching about the impermanence of life. So what are the other forms that a Buddha can take? There's also what's called the Dharma body. That's the Dharmakaya which is non-material, and it doesn't age or die. This is apparently the true body of the Buddha, and as a non-material, non-changing form, it lives in what's called a Buddha realm, or a pure land, kind of a heaven. The third type of form that a Buddha might take is called the enjoyment body, the Sambhogakaya. This is also an immortal body, and it's made of a kind of subtle energy. This idea is called the three bodies of the Buddha theory or teaching. In this article, there's a brief concluding section on notions of the body in Buddhist tantric traditions, which is a very different thing than what we see in earlier Buddhism. Even in early Buddhism, though, the body can be a source of extreme joy, uh, which might happen in some kinds of advanced forms of meditation. But in tantric Buddhism, which is a later development of Buddhism, also called Vajrayana or the Vajra vehicle, this idea of the body as a source of extreme joy is even further developed. Tantric Buddhist texts describe what they call a subtle body that exists within all of us and that's made of energies called winds, that's prana, and drops, that's bindu, that circulate throughout channels all throughout the body. In tantric meditation, people learn to perceive and control those energies as they move around the body in those channels. And by doing this, they intentionally generate extreme states of joy or bliss. And those states are said to be the purest state of the mind. Anicca Sankhara So in these practices, using the body to generate sensations of joy is part of the path to enlightenment. And the body, therefore, isn't something that has to be suppressed or abandoned as it seems like early Indian Buddhism was advocating. The shadow cast by suffering Anatta Sankha Oh, 
This episode of Footnotes was produced by Francis Garrett with sound editing by Jesse Witte. The Footnotes series was created at the University of Toronto in Canada with support from eCampus Ontario.